Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are very excited to be joined by New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Ravi Batra. Dr. Batra is a professor of economics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. He is the author of five international bestsellers. Dr. Batra was ranked third in a group of superstar economists selected from American and Canadian universities and featured in the academic publication Economic Enquiry. In 1990, the Italian Prime Minister awarded him a medal of the Italian Senate for writing a book that correctly predicted the downfall of Soviet communism 15 years before it happened. Dr. Patra has been featured in newspapers and magazines such as the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Time, Newsweek, the U.S. News and World Report, and he has appeared regularly on major networks including CBS, NBC, CNN, ABC, CNBC, Fox Business Network, and MSNBC, to name a few. In 2009, Dr. Batra received the Pratina and Navin Doshi Award for his contributions to economic analysis. The son of a professor of Sanskrit, Dr. Batra studied economics in college in New Delhi, India, and in 1966, enrolled in a PhD program in international trade at Southern Illinois University. By the time he was 30, he was an established contributor to some of the nation's most prominent economic journals. That year, Southern Methodist University gave him tenure as a full professor. We are also especially excited to be joined by a special guest co-host, Jay Gokhlai. Jay Gokhlai is a graduate of the Columbus Academy in Columbus, Ohio, and he will be a sophomore majoring in economics at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. I want to welcome both of them to the show, and Jay will kick off this exciting discussion. Basically, there's two schools of thought that come with student loans and the issue of student loan debt. There's this first perspective that if you take out a loan, that you should be responsible to pay that back, that you know the consequences of taking out a loan. And by consequences, those don't necessarily have to be negative, but you know that for a fact that you will have to eventually pay that back. You're accepting that liability. Uh, there's the, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say the other perspective is that when you take out a loan and in this day and age, it's quite frankly unnecessary and it shouldn't be there given that it's a huge financial burden for later on. It's actually negatively impacting future economic growth 
due to the fact that individuals have to pay off their student loan debts instead of reinvesting their hard-earned money in the economy, making different business investments, or even just making different payments on cars or houses or things to build individual families. So yeah, I'd love to just hear your perspectives on those schools of thoughts and, and maybe even tie into the economics of student loan debt and what the future may hold for that issue, maybe different solutions you'd like to pose for that. Well, I think the future is uh, very bright for the whole world. Right now, I mean, I made a forecast a long time ago that 2019 will be the year when the revolution starts. It's in my book, The, the New Golden Age, on page 173. Two years have been selected there, 2009 and or 2019. So in 2019, we had the coronavirus. I didn't know what kind of things, what kind of traumatic stuff would happen in 2019. All I knew was this is the last year of the decade. And since 1929, every final year of the decade gives us an idea of what is going to happen in the whole decade by itself. So the last, it, uh, 2019 was the last year of the decade and I knew something terrible was going to happen. And it did. Coronavirus started that year. And now for the rest of this decade, this is going to have a major impact on society all over the world. But the end result is incredibly brilliant. Uh, and this is student loan, wealth concentration, uh, lots of imbalances in, in the world economy, they will just disappear and we will have a new economic system, a new economic and political system. That's why I don't think student loan is going to last for a long time. Interesting. And if I may, in terms of what those changes may be, are there any specifics that you'd like to expand on in terms of that realm? Because I think that it's quite a very bold prediction and, and very optimistic about uh, what's going to happen. But yeah, I'm just curious as to what went into making those types of predictions, basically. Let me fully explain that is my reasoning for selecting this 2019 as a traumatic year, sure. uh, which will start, which will be the beginning of a new era. There is a theory of social cycle, which I elaborated very well in uh, in the new golden age. And the theory says that society is moving in terms of a cycle. You have a civilization started with the age of warriors when the soldiers uh, were dominant uh, in the social order. Then came the age of intellectuals, wherein people with intellectual mentality or people with intelligence, intelligence began to rule society. Finally came the age of acquisitors or the age of money when wealth rules. And then the age of the wealthy ends up in a social revolution. And then the new, new era starts over. So we are now in the age of the wealthy. And how did I select of 2019? Well, as the start of this revolution, I looked at the previous age of the wealthy in the Western world. And in India, previous age of the wealthy was feudalism. At that time, feudal landlords 
ruled society with the help of their land. And that land was mostly the source of wealth at that time. So that was the, that age ended in a revolution. And you know what brought it about? The revolution occurred because of Black Plague. Black Plague was the cause of the revolution at that time. So something like that is happening now. Coronavirus is also some kind of Black Plague. And uh, the revolution is actually brought about by nature. This is the law of nature that each age has to end at some point. But the age of the wealthy creates so much poverty in society that everybody turns against the ruling wealthy class. And then there is the this revolution. And so this, this is started now. The plague of, we have monopoly capitalism today. So monopoly capitalism is like a plague. And that plague will be ended by this plague of coronavirus. And this coronavirus has been, is the, has been brought about by Mother Nature. It appears to be bad, but that's the way society has moved all through history. Whenever the ruling class becomes oppressive, whenever it becomes exploitative, then Mother Nature brings about a change. And so I think this coronavirus will be, will, will turn out to be the, the instigator of change at this point. And so the rest of this decade, few years are bad. In, in the few early years of this decade are bad, but then comes a new economic system, which I call mass capitalism or economic democracy, in which the, the majority shares of, a big, of big companies are in the hands of the workers themselves, and they control the financial system. And there is there's a lot of competition. When you have monopoly capitalism, there is hardly any competition among companies. By the way, it's illegal to have such monopoly power, which creates, which eliminates competition, and we don't have any hardly any competition in society today. But when there is economic democracy, then there will be an end to this corruption and to monopoly capitalism. So I think uh, the, the future is very bright. And uh, that's what my message is to everybody, that don't worry about this black plague. As individuals, we have to worry about. But as society, it will be very good because every new system has been better than better than the one it replaced. That's what you find in history. That every new system is better than the one you one that is replaced. So when this mass capitalism or economic democracy results, there will be a lot of uh, reforms and uh, monopoly capitalism would disappear and so would wealth concentration. So and at that point the wages will be very high because the workers, the rulers in a factory, they will make sure that they are paid in accordance with worker productivity. And nowadays, workers are very productive because of very nice, good technology. Productivity is high, but wages are very low. That's the reason for very high poverty today. Today, I think uh, the mark of 
high wages or, or good wages, how much saving a person can afford through their income. And many studies show that 60% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account. Now, what's $1,000 today? Nothing. And so poverty has been rising. And one cause of rising poverty, by the way, is the government debt. Economics used to be, in the past, uh, earn your way to spending. But now the government borrows and then spends. So the economy today is borrow and spend. And that's not, that makes the wealthy, that makes the wealthy even wealthier. You can show that in mathematical economics with, with, uh, mathematically you can show that the government's deficit actually ends up in the coffers of the wealthy. I have written a book called, uh, what's that book? Uh, End Unemployment Now. That's the real title, and then there's a subtitle I don't remember, and unemployment now. So that will show you, you can see very clearly how the government deficit, almost all of it, ends up in the coffers of the CEOs. So I'm very positive about what's going to happen in the current decade. Well, Ravi, I wanted to ask you, in your 2007 book, which you referenced, The New Golden Age, The Coming Revolution Against Political Corruption and Economic Chaos, that really have relevance to what we're seeing today, you predicted the housing bubble that occurred in 2007 to 2008 timeframe, along with the dire consequences, which included loan defaults, a weaker U.S. dollar, and the crash of U.S. bond stock and real estate markets. And in a Texas Monthly article from 2007, when you were publicizing your book, you said, whenever there is a financial crisis today, the government responds by increasing the budget deficit and cutting interest rates to lure more people into debt. So fast forward to 2020, and as you stated, we see the globe dealing with the COVID pandemic, with central banks around the world easing monetary policy negative interest rates in many countries around the world, and the U.S. overnight rate effectively at zero. And excess debt does not seem to be a problem yet, but this is yet to play out as a number of companies have increased their debt to levels that are not likely to be adequately serviced in the future. And we've never seen the massive amounts of stimulus that have been injected into the world economies to provide a bridge to vaccines and to get the virus under control. And so I just have to ask you, getting out your crystal ball, how do you believe this will play out? And which financial markets are you most concerned about in terms of financial bubbles being created? And you've already mentioned the gap in wealth between nations and individuals. And so, I mean, do you think this will result in a balancing out or exacerbating the issue? And then as well regarding inflation, this is a big concern right now. And, and where do you see this taking us right now? Well, as I said earlier, today we have the system is like that of borrow and spend. The interesting part is they borrow money from the wealthy. And then it, they turn it, send it back to the wealthy in the form of tax cuts 
or in the form of the budget deficit because there is not much demand in the economy. There's not much natural demand in the economy. And so to create demand, they have to spend money. They have to have a huge budget deficit. But budget deficit is uh, financed by either the federal borrowing or by the Federal Reserve issuing bonds. So, and since the producers can sell everything with the help of the government, they don't feel any need for raising wages. Wages are the natural way to create demand. But they don't feel any need for it. Why? They get, they get all sold out. So once they are sold out, they make their profits uh, see poverty. That's the cause of poverty. The poverty is from the fact that what they call the wage gap, wage gap is rising. The wage gap is the ratio between productivity and real wages. Productivity, rising productivity is the reason for why production rises. When a person becomes more productive, he or she produces more. And then rising wages are, are the reason why demand rises. But we don't have wages rising, so production rises. There is excess supply of goods and services without, but the government creates de deficit to, to absorb that ex excess supply. This is how equilibrium is maintained. So macroeconomic equilibrium nowadays is supply equals demand plus new debt. All through history, if you find the, the macroeconomy was in equilibrium when supply is equal to demand. But nowadays, it is supply equaling demand plus new debt. And this debt creates massive wealth concentration. So I think there will be a, something will have to give in this economy. And, and then there will be major revolution. I just want to expand on the on the earlier question, I guess. I, I thought it was fascinating, the historical analysis used to inform economic theories. Uh, definitely something that's great to know, given that I, I'll, I'll plan on uh, studying economics at Northwestern. So yeah, that, that's great knowing that history is really crucial. I love studying history as well. But I just want to understand the difference between, I guess, this new economic democracy that you call, not necessarily a difference, but just what exactly that entails. I know that there was the mention of workers uh, having a larger stake in our overall economy. I think for some people that might be reminiscent of what a socialist or, or maybe even a communist system might look like, and I might be completely misinformed in that, but is there any overlap between those two systems? And, and what new changes would come with an economic democracy that are different from our current system that we're in right now, what you refer to as more of monopoly capitalism. Yeah, okay. So I just wrote a new book. Uh, it was published in, in 2020. It's called Common Sense Macroeconomics. Common Sense Macroeconomics, because we, there is not much much common sense in the theories today. <laughs> uh, so I call it common sense macroeconomics. There I've explained this concept of, among other things, economic democracy. Now, economic democracy is a system in which majority shares of large companies 
are owned by workers themselves. They have at least 51% of total shares. So this way, they control the management of the economy of that factory, of that industry. So economic democracy has nothing to do with communism or socialism or even or monopoly capitalism. You could call it, to use the word capitalism, you could call it mass capitalism. Capitalism in which the masses have a stake themselves. Uh, the masses control, ownership is widespread, and so it's a mass capitalism, and they appoint the CEO and the board of directors in the factory. And uh, so when the CEO is uh, answerable to the workers, then the CEO will make sure that their wages rise as their productivity goes up. So in such a system, as wages rise, as productivity rises, wages go up in the same proportion. So you can't have any recession or depression because if productivity rises, we know supply goes up because productivity is the main source of supply. Wages are the main source of demand. So if productivity rises, wages, uh, supply goes up, and then wages rise in the same proportion. So that makes demand rise, and demand rises as much as the supply. So supply is always equal to demand. So in this system, you don't need any budget deficit to create equilibrium. As I said, right now the equilibrium occurs if supply is equal to demand plus new debt. But you don't, once you don't have a supply demand, supply demand excess, supply demand difference is not there, you don't need budget deficit. And also, people become very wealthy. The, people, the living, living standard of the people rises with rising productivity, so everybody is happy. The CEO is happy, workers are happy, and so this economic democracy has not been attempted before. The major reform but of course, it won't be easy. It will take some very strong leadership at the federal level. Then it will, it will come about. But as I said, the era of the wealthy is almost at its end. So it will come about, but it will take some big effort to bring it about, but it will come about. Sure. So yeah, go ahead. So now that I'm understanding it correctly, basically, this, this economic democracy, mass capitalism still promotes, I guess, what you could call the the good aspects, the beneficial aspects of capitalism, where you do have innovation and you have people that are, I guess, striving for excellence and you have a lot of freedom and choice, basically, to improve, innovate and succeed. But yet it makes a more fair system than our current economic system so that people mutually benefit. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Economic democracy, the system is only fair, only, it's very ethical. I mean, when you have spent, say, four years at Northwestern, sure, <laughs> and uh, you study hard, you work hard and pass with good grades, then you expect your wages to be 
to, to reflect your productivity. Sure. Right now, it doesn't happen that way. The system is very unethical now, and that's why there is so much uh, unrest sure. all over the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Outrage. I know that there's a lot within a lot of student populations. And I know that from firsthand experience from different classmates I've had and different friends I've made while in university. So yeah, that's definitely very encouraging. That's something that at least I've been trying to look into in an economic system that is definitely more fair, but still promotes the same ideals of capitalism that are unique to America, which make at least our country a place where you can find financial success, kind of restoring those American dream ideals. Oh, that's um, exactly. American sure. dream fits into the system. Everybody's dream will be satisfied because wages will reflect productivity. Now, mm-hmm. wages are very low, abysmally low. Sure. Uh, I mean, minimum wage is, uh, what, seven twenty-five an, an hour, something like that. It has yeah. been in, in 10 years. In, while cost of living keeps going up. And anytime that somebody talks about raising wages to reflect the rising productivity, government is unable to do that. The CEOs holler, oh, it, is, it will be unfair. Mm. My God, they are making billions of dollars themselves, but raising the minimum wage to the level of rising productivity will be unfair. That's, that's so it's, it's corruption. Sure. Uh, yeah. That's a very common argument against raising minimum wage in the sense that I guess there'll be decreased job growth. And as you mentioned, a lot of different CEOs and business executives will claim that the actual revenue lost because of higher wages will, I guess, I don't know, negatively impact the business itself and cause a, you know, economic repercussions. That's a bad theory, awfully bad theory. Mm. Because when wages are low, there is not enough demand. And who will the CEOs sell their product to? Sure. If there's not enough demand, how will goods be sold out? At that point, only they need cost and government budget deficit to clear their supply. So demand, so now we need natural demand plus new debt, and that becomes equal to supply. So this is totally, totally horrible theory that higher wages will create unemployment. In fact, you know, people say, see how, how low are, uh, and sometimes people say, I mean, President Trump used to say, our unemployment is very low, and it's a plus. Well, unemployment has to be low, when wages are nothing, not next to nothing. Sure. They will hire people because well, they, they get nothing, their productivity is very high, but wages are very low, so of course, unemployment is low. The trick is to have high employment, with high wages, then that's a good system. Sure. And I guess one thing that I think might be worth mentioning in this day and age is maybe about big tech, because I know that'll be the future of where, I guess, our economy goes and where a lot of people go into different careers. And I know that uh, in terms of what we're thinking about automation and different careers that won't be here in 10 years, you notice that a lot of things within the STEM field will will still be here. That's an, an ever-growing industry. So are there any thoughts that you have about maybe tech companies? I know right now with, with like companies like Amazon and Apple and Google, I know that their business structures are, are different, but I guess for future predictions for that in this new economic, or I guess this mass capitalist system, what do you predict for that? Well, let me talk about uh, this automation. 
You know, in the past, automation did not create job losses. There are two types of new technologies. New technology is of two types. One is where it replaces jobs. New technology replaces jobs. That's one one type. Mm. The other type is new technology also creates new products. So new product technology creates jobs. New process technology replaces jobs. But the United States had automation all through its history. And there was never a problem. Because who lost their jobs because of new automation, they found higher paying jobs in the new product technology. But nowadays, what happens? Automation has become a big problem for workers. Mm. They They get replaced when automation occurs. Why do they get replaced? Because new products are not produced in the United States. They are produced abroad. Wages are very low. So like Apple, for instance, has lots of new products, computers, iPhones, and so many other things. But the production of these things happens in China. Discovery occurs in the U.S., production occurs in China. So while the U.S. workers lose jobs because of uh, automation, Mm. they don't, don't get the benefits of new product technologies because the production does not occur. So free trade is another reason why there is rising poverty. Free trade does not mean nowadays, we should not have free trade nowadays because first of all, it replaces jobs and transfers jobs to low-wage countries. Secondly, free trade itself creates massive pollution. This is maybe a surprise to people how free trade creates so much pollution. Mm. Look at it this way. Free trade requires a lot of transportation, which is unnecessary. We should have free investment, not free trade. There is an economic theory which says free trade and free investment are equivalent. And so since they're equivalent, why not just adopt free investment? In free investment, capital moves moves from one nation to another, but not goods. Nowadays, suppose, you know, China wants to, what, what does China do? China takes raw materials from Australia, and that's one way of causing pollution because it's transportation, but pollutes the seas and, and the atmosphere. So China takes raw materials from Australia, takes them to China, converts them into finished industrial products and ships them back to Australia. This two-way transportation will be unnecessary. Mm. This, it, it only creates pollution. If, if China is so interested in Australian economy, best thing is open up factories in Australia. Open the factories where demand is. Now, don't ship the goods because that creates massive pollution. Sure. So, so, so there are a lot of uh, things that are wrong, that are wrong in the current e- economic system. I mean, climate change is a big uh, slogan. They ought to reduce pollution all over the world, but that they themselves, their policies themselves, are responsible for it. All this free trade, all this. Ma- it is like massive commuting. 
Free trade is like, like massive commuting. And all this commuting only creates pollution, nothing else. So free trade should not be adopted if you want to solve the problem of the climate. If you want to eliminate free, uh, pollution, free trade should be as, uh, trade should be as low as possible among nations. What I'm saying is economic heresy, but as I say, it's common sense. Common sense macroeconomics is what I believe in. Fascinating. Yeah, I guess it's interesting because I took a microeconomics course during my first year at Ohio State. And one of the, the things that we learned was that trade, ultimately, when done properly, benefits both parties you know, given that they both have a good or service that the other wants and that that mutual exchange is beneficial for both parties. Uh, But that's really interesting to hear the distinction between free trade and then also free investment is something that's definitely a point that I think should be heavily emphasized. There was a Nobel Prize winner, Robert Mundell. He showed mathematically that free trade and free foreign investment have the same Result, same consequence. So if the consequence is, if the result is the same, why not just have free foreign investment? Because it does not come with pollution. Free trade comes with a lot of pollution, but not free foreign investment. Sure. Yeah, that's a great point, especially with climate change. That's another thing we talked about in my, uh, I took a course, Coca-Cola Capitalism, and it was actually a U.S. business and environmental history course. And we talked about the different implications of trade because if you're going to be trading goods and services, there there's, has to be a way that you transport them. And that's where a lot of the pollution occurs. So figuring out logistically how to solve that problem is interesting. I, I believe what you're saying is with, again, investments opposed to these these trades. Exactly. It's most beneficial. Yeah, that, I think that's a lot of the uh, great conversation there. I guess, Mom, do you have anything else that you wanted to add? Any other questions? Because I, I think that I've had a lot of my different questions and concerns answered very well. No, I think this has been an amazing conversation. The only other question I had is that looking at the Biden administration and its agenda, they appear to be seeking to rein in the wealth and power of some of the biggest companies that Jay referenced. And the highest profile proposals include a corporate tax hike to 28% at a time when companies like Amazon have in recent years paid an effective tax rate of zero. And businesses in the U.S. here already pay a combined corporate rate of more than 25% when state and local rates are included. Now, this is a figure higher than most of America's global competitors. The average rate among countries that constitute the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which considers corporate taxes to be, quote unquote, the most harmful type of tax for um, economic growth is 23.4%, excluding the U.S. And the rate offered in China already undercuts our current one. And so my question for you is, I mean, we know that China has added 114 Fortune Global 500 headquarters and the U.S. has lost 58. Today, China has 124 and the U.S. has 121. And so I just want to get your thoughts on this. Will we lose a competitive advantage to Beijing if indeed Biden does in his vision to rebuild America's infrastructure and out-competing China Can we achieve those ambitious twin objectives with an even higher corporate tax rate than what's being offered by China? 
Well, let me talk about economic history now. In the United States, when there was very little trade with China and Japan, we are talking about the 1950s and the 1960s, the United States taxes were simply phenomenally high. The corporate income tax was 46%. That was the, wow. that was the tax, the corporate income tax was 46%. The individual income tax on top bracket incomes was 91%. Can you think about that right now? The individual <laughs> income tax was 91% and economic growth was 4.5% per year. Now, taxes are very low. Income tax is very small. Corporate tax, in, uh, tax is also very small. And economic growth is barely 2%. So history shows that high taxation in a monopoly capitalistic economy is not bad at all. That's what history shows. I'm not saying it was fair. Tax system was not fair. The tax rate should not be very high. But then monopoly capitalism should also not exist. Companies should not be allowed to buy up other companies and create behemoths, create huge, big business. So both of these are bad. High taxes are bad. High or low competition among businesses is also bad. Both of them, them should be done away with. But so, so this tax system has to be thought in terms of the current, the economic system we live in. If you have monopoly capitalism, then you need, need high taxation to create fairness as well as high growth. But otherwise, if you don't have, if you have mass capitalism or high competition among industries, then you can have low taxes, which should be equal all over the globe. Then there is no system, there is no incentive to move one factory out, out of the one country to another. And so it's not unfair. Did you know about this thing that top bracket tax rate under a Republican government of Eisenhower was 91% in, in the 1950s. Nowadays, it's 39%. But so, and corporate tax rate, tax rate was around close to 46%. People just don't know that their history, so they don't know how to create a system of taxation. No, those are absolutely insightful remarks. And, you know, I cannot believe we are at the end of our time with you. We are just so excited for you to have joined us tonight. Professor Ravi Batra, New York Times bestselling author, world-renowned economist and professor, and Northwestern sophomore Jay Gokhale. Thank you both so much for joining us today. It's my, my joy and, and pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Professor Batra. It's, it's been a really great conversation. Thanks a lot.